Well, I am your teacher this week for the next several weeks, actually. Um, Zach is on, he, he's, the Army's got him doing what they have him doing, and he's going to be training and going to school for the next couple of weeks as well, so you're going to be relegated to me for a few weeks, but we'll press through anyway. And if you, as you're getting seated, I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump right back into Philippians where we left off. So um, bow with me as we pray to our Almighty God. Heavenly Father, we love you. What an incredible God you are. We praise your name. You are above all things. We worship you because you're so great, you're so good, and you're so righteous. We worship you because you first loved us, because you pursued us, you called us, you drew us to yourself. We thank you because you made a way for us, we who were in no way worthy of it, in no way pursuing it, in no way earning it because we can't. In spite of all those things, you made a way and you sent your son and he died for us and he rose again and he fulfilled all prophecies and he promised to come back again and we anticipate that day. But in the meantime, you've called us to do other things now. Now that we're yours and we're your child and we're co-heirs, we are, are called to live a life worthy of that. We are called to live a life with joy of the anticipation of what is coming. A, a live a life of excitement and zeal because of the message that we carry. And I pray that we can clearly see that in what Paul is teaching to the Philippian church and what he sees in them and what he sees in himself and the example that he gave us and the example we should give to the next generation. We love you, Lord. Be with us as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week in Philippians chapter 1, Zach took us through several verses. This week you'll see we're going to go through nine of them, and that is, that is accurate. It is going to be nine, and I'm going to pull that off, believe it or not. Fortunately, this particular passage, and we'll read it in just a moment, it really is focused on the same concept, and I'll just give it away right now. Paul's mindset and our mindset should be the same, that to live is Christ. It's working for Christ, living in his name, proclaiming his name, working for the kingdom that is coming. But if we were to die in, in that process, or otherwise as a believer, boy, do we gain. It is what we would call a win-win. And that is different than the world. So that's going to be kind of the overriding theme of this entire passage. But last week, what I think led us into this, what Zach taught us, is he covered this interesting section, and actually we'll come back to this next week because Paul comes back to it next week as well when we get into chapter 2. But this interesting piece where there are those preaching the gospel for the wrong reasons that were in opposition to Paul, that they were doing it, if you go back and if you're in Philippians chapter 1, and I didn't tell you to go there, but it is on the screen. If you're good students, you would have been paying attention to that. Anyway, back in Philippians chapter 1, Notice it says in verse 15, this is from last week, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, right? There are some who are doing it for the wrong reasons, but others from goodwill. Paul's conclusion to that is, that's not good, but look at verse 18. What then? Only this, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. There it is. There it is. Last week's conclusion was, and our conclusion should be, whatever it takes. The gospel being proclaimed. This is not for us to decide who's doing it right or wrong. We certainly want to help to rebuke and correct those who are around us that are in our lives, using Scripture to do that with gentleness and respect. But we want the gospel proclaimed. 
That's what we would like. That should be our desire because we know that that is what's changing lives. That's what's morphing people into dead to life, darkness to light. That was the idea here. Paul's like, listen, whatever it takes. If that's what they're going to do, it's wrong. God's going to deal with them, but God has proclaimed, Christ has proclaimed, the gospel's proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So that leads us into this, and what Zach left me was verse 19 through 21. So I'm going to read all of this section from 20, 19 rather, through 30. So bear with me as we go through this, and then we'll break the whole thing down. It's a long section, but if you're in your, in your Bibles, I will read the whole thing without stopping, and then we'll break it down as we go. Verse 19 of chapter 1. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's where Zach ended this week. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all of your progress and joy in the faith, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So you can see here, we see the the development of Paul's thoughts to this church in Philippi. And as Zach mentioned last week, that this would have been read to them in, in, in completeness. They would have heard the whole thing at one time. And I think maybe go back to it like we do. But when they would have first received this letter, they would have heard it read in its, in its completeness at one setting. But you'll notice he's developing here this contrast. Here's, here's what happens if we're living for Christ. This is what it looks like. But if we were to die, if we were to suffer, that's okay too. Those are win-win situations. So here's how I'm going to break this down for us today into four parts. Number one, the first part, verses 21 through 24, this concept of what he means by, and I think we already know, but we're going to use Scripture to help us with this, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Then he shifts again to, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that all glory belongs to the Lord when we do this, both in life and in death. And, and we oftentimes will, will, will take God's glory and try to bring it to ourselves, but let me just remind you, he doesn't share that, and he won't allow you to share it with him either. So we want to make sure that what we're doing is for the right reasons, much like he was trying to contrast with those who were opposing him around Philippi, speaking and preaching the truth, but for the wrong reasons. Verses 27 and 28, what does this mean to live a life worthy of the gospel and the different pieces of that that we'll see from Scripture? And then finally, there's an honor 
you'll notice that it just said, then I'll just kind of jump ahead of it, it's been granted to you. That is very specific Greek there. It has been granted to you, almost graced to you, that you should suffer for Christ, that it should be hard, that it may be something that would require sacrifice. I wouldn't say may, it will require sacrifice. So that's where we're heading today. That's where we're going. Back to Philippians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 21 through 24 again. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me reread those passages. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm, I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he un- unloads this for us. He breaks this down for us. I should have brought that up for those of you who didn't have your Bibles. But he breaks this down for us and gives us the contrast. He's telling us right off the bat, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, living in the flesh he identifies for us has to do with, whoops, I went to the wrong button, has to do with fruitful labor. Okay, so that's labor that produces fruit. Now we know that that is the fruit of the Spirit that is in us, driving us to this, drawing us to do His work, prompting us to do His will, but that's good. And what Paul's going to show us through other scriptures is that this brings us fulfillment and joy. Now this helps others. This is really an important element in what we talked about a few weeks ago, you might remember I put up a slide a few weeks ago about what it means to go to church or why we go to church, and I had, I don't know, maybe seven or eight points from Scripture that I zipped through because I was behind schedule, if you remember. But I said, take a picture of that. That's a good slide. The, the, the idea that there's fruitful labor for us to work for Christ. It's hard, but it's beneficial. It's, it's fulfilling. It's full of joy. And Paul talks about this in many different types of ways. And uh, just kind of to jump back to some passages we've seen, thinking back a few months when we were going through Galatians, you might remember this, um, this idea, and I'll go back to this right here. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this idea that there's something in us now that we're saved, that we're redeemed, the regeneration has begun, that it's not I who's living. I'm not... I'm not doing things on my own accord anymore. There's a prompting of the Holy Spirit that is pushing me to do what he wants, not what I want. It's much like what Christ would say in the garden, not my will but yours be done. So there's a transformation that's happened. It's his will that's been done. So let me go back here. Here's the win-win contemplation that Paul has. Here's the way I kind of look at this. He has a strong desire to continue to build the church. He wants to continue to do this work that God is doing through him, Galatians 2.20. That's what he wants to do, to build the church, to edify others, to spread the gospel, to equip others to do the same. He really wants to do that. He's chosen for this. So are you chosen for this. So we we oftentimes will look at Paul and his discussion and say, well, it's very interesting how Paul thinks. No, no, he's showing us how we should think. See, it's not just, well, this is the way Paul was. No, no, that's how we should be. See, we're chosen and we're called to this too. So he's got that dilemma. He's got this strong desire, but he also has a strong desire to be with the Lord. And so should you. We're going to see this in 2 Timothy in his very last letter. He, he's, he's showing us this when he knows he's at the end. And we'll, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I just while we're on the topic, he's showing us 
this battle within him, but he makes reference to you in that Second Timothy passage. Anyone, all of us who have longed for his appearing, he's trying to connect you to, hey, this is all of us. We're all feeling this. This moment where we're in paradise, we're sinless. Oftentimes the students ask me, what are you looking forward to the most about the rapture? And, and without question, that I no longer have that sinful desire in me to do something that is against what God wants. It is a constant battle. I can't wait to have the sin nature ripped from me and I get this brand new, sinless, perfect will. I can't wait for that. That's going to come for all of us. Here's the way, and this, this idea, this contrast is a win-win. Here's how Lutzer puts this. He actually contrasts this with the way wor- the world thinks. Now, you're not going to hear me quote Shakespeare very often. I'll be honest with you. I haven't read Shakespeare since high school, and I did it reluctantly then. But what he does do for us, and Lutzer's going to quote Shakespeare, Shakespeare does tap into the human heart a little bit, the sinful human heart, the sinful human philosophy of life. And honestly, when the world comes down to it, for them, life and death is a lose-lose, isn't it? Here's how Lutzer puts it, and bear with me as I read this. I know it's kind of small up there, but I'll read it to you. You'll remember Shakespeare's Hamlet. Hamlet was contemplating suicide, and this is what he said. He said, to be or not to be, that is the question. Now, if you remember that soliloquy, here is his dilemma. Life was too miserable to go on living. But on the other hand, death was very fearful. Does that not say, yet in the sleep of death, what dreams may come when we we have suffered off of this mortal coil? He's saying, life is miserable. I don't want to go on living. But death could be worse. We need to contrast that with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I'd like to die now but God has kept me alive for your good. That's a rough translation of what he's saying, but he's saying, for me to live is Christ. If I go on living, I live with Christ and I can make it. And if I die, I'm even better off. Notice the difference. Hamlet said, live or die, I lose. Paul said, live or die, I win. What a difference Christ makes. That's a difference between the world and us. That's the difference between you being regenerated and justified and sanctified and being a whole new creation and how you think now compared to the way you used to think and the rest of the world thinks. I mean, you, you, you consider even the richest and most famous in the world, how often do we hear stories of them being without peace and, and without fulfillment and desiring more? You know, it, it's, there's no win in that. There's a lose in that. And holding on to this world because they have no idea or hope for the future. Going forward, we, we look at this. Paul says this kind of same idea in 2 Corinthians 4. And, and we consider it, it's for the sake of the gospel, the context of this. He says this in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 4. Knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all, it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends more and more, people may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So when we look at this, you'll think of the context here. This context in 2 Corinthians, I know many of you know this passage, is that we are the jars of clay, and this incredible treasure of the gospel is given to us, these pathetic humans that we are. We're these jars of clay, these very temporary vessels, and yet this incredible priceless treasure is given to us. That's the context of what we're seeing here. And he's saying, notice in the middle of this, for it is is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more, that means more are getting saved, 
and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We'll enjoy this life more as we proclaim the gospel. We're going to feel more fulfilled, have more joy, more contentment if we're doing what we were made to do as grace extends. In that same context, I really should have brought you to 2 Corinthians 4. Some of me may already got there already. Verse 16 and 17 and 18 kind of develops this. It says it, it, this idea. So we don't lose heart. If you recall, if you're, you happen to be there, you can look at it. And although our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So you know the context of this is temporary versus eternal. And it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And notice verse 18, if you happen to be there, but I'll just read it to you. So we don't look to the things that we are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are eternal, or the things that are unseen are eternal. So we have a perspective on, although we're here for a moment, and we're just pathetic jars of clay, man, we've got this incredible opportunity to do something just for a small, small period of time. A small window to proclaim Christ. What an incredible thing. There's another reason why we did it. For the sake of salvation, but also in view of what's coming. This one of the, the, the uh, two to three very famous passages about the rapture and us receiving this incredible glorified body someday. Paul's conclusion in 1 Corinthians 15, the entire chapter about the resurrection, the fact that Christ rose so we will rise as believers, notice what he comes to the conclusion with in this. This is kind of the end of this. He says, but all this, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what he's saying right before this. Boy, death has got a victory for a moment. Boy, death has got a sting for a moment. But thanks be to God, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. See, this moment that we're sitting here, we know what's coming. We know what's been promised. But for the moment, we've got work to do, and there's joy in it, knowing that our labor is not in vain. It's a great reminder for us when we consider of this. Why do we live for Christ? Well, we know know what's coming. We know what's drawing us. It's not exactly a carrot that's dangling in front of us like a dumb animal, but it's similar. There's some similarities to that. We understand what this means. But then he says to die is gain. Now, I want to look at this from a Greek perspective for a second. And you guys know me and my Greek. I'm not very good at it, but I can read. And here's what this means. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, when you break this down and you look at it and exactly how it's supposed to be in the in the Greek, notice it, it says, very much more better. Now, that doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? But that's what it really looks like. Those three Greek words in a row, okay? So polo, Milan, and kreason, very much more better. What's Paul trying to get across? He is using the highest superlative in the Greek language that there is to say, this is unbeatable, this is matchless, this is excellent, outstanding, amazing, incomparable. This would be awesome. So he is really trying to get the believer to understand, listen, I know, I get it, that being with Christ is so much better. That's our hope. We talk about hope a lot, but I think sometimes we almost um, neuter it a little bit. Do you really contemplate how great it will be? And when we do that, I think it really helps us to understand what we're gaining and why we continue to press on, why we continue to do that 
is when we think that how much greater it's going to be to, to be with Christ, to be in his presence. I, sometimes I think we get better at this as we get older and we lose loved ones and we draw closer to the Lord and sanctification continues to happen. I think we get better at this. Trust me, I, I teach teenagers for a living and they don't get this very well. And I, I didn't either when I was a teenager. I don't blame them because they're, they're just young and they're still thinking about getting their license. You know, I mean, that, those are the exciting things for them. They, they want to get married. They want to graduate. But Boy, as you get older, I think you really start to feel this. And I think we should embrace this as well. Here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He has three perspectives here in this particular passage. He's talking about his present reality, which is not, it's pretty grim in 2 Timothy. I mentioned this earlier. His past faithfulness or God's faithfulness through him. And then we're going to see also his anticipation of what's coming. Here's what he says to Timothy as he's being real honest about his situation. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now, we know from Paul's other writings, he's not taking credit for this, because what does Paul talk about when he talks about boasting? He boasts in the Lord, right? He knows that the Lord is doing this through him, but he is, he's recalling, look at this faithful road the Lord has taken me on, that he has sustained me through all of this. Then he goes forward, verse 8, henceforth, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. I mentioned this earlier, though. This is for all of us, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That this is the anticipation of what's coming. To die is gain. In this particular passage, we see it all. Living for Christ, and what a reward that is. And then dying for Christ, and what a reward that is. That there is a win-win here. Jesus makes reference of this uh, very briefly when he's talking to these Greek proselytes that, that we see coming up and asking Philip, hey, we want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus, as he always does, challenges them with something that's pretty tough. And he'll say this to these young men that come up and, and want to hear from Christ, these Greeks who, who want to hear about him. It's one of the rare instances, by the way, outside of Samaritans that we see Christ talking to Greeks or to uh, Gentiles. Here's, here's what he says to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am there, my servant must also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now there's a dual play of information going on here. Jesus is definitively talking about the fact that we benefit when we die as believers. We hear this, of course, in his interaction with Mary and Martha at the, at the resurrection of Lazarus, that not, not only do we, do we have resurrection, spiritually speaking, that we're a different person, but we will physically resurrect. No doubt about that, but there is a new life here as well. I think there's a dual play of information that Christ is teaching them, that there is something else. You're going to give up everything. You handle the things of this life loosely for the name of Christ. There's a couple things that Christ is talking about here, but to die is gain. The idea of death is not the end of the world. When we talk about death as believers, we don't talk about it like everybody else. We know that it is it, death for us is a temporary event, that it is a, a momentary affliction, but it is actually a benefit to us. So Jesus making reference to this. And then in John 14, famously talking about what will happen at the rapture, we know what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Notice he starts with this. This is an encouragement. The concept of the Lord coming to take us or even 
us being taken to be with the Lord in death. He's speaking, of course, the rapture here. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come again, take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And this is all future. This is all looking ahead. This is all looking to what Christ is going to do in us and what he's going to do for us. This is the ultimate fulfillment of, of, of our, our mortal bodies into glorified bodies. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Let me give you another understanding of this in this concept of this tent that we're in. 2 Corinthians 5. As always, I spend a little bit more time at the beginning prepping this, and then we'll hustle through some of these other ones. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This I want to spend just a second on. 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read this through and then talk about the concept of this tent. We'll focus on 8 through 10, but let me read the whole passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. So we can get an understanding of what Paul's saying here. For we know that if the tent, that's our body, this temporary body that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, et- hands, human hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to be in our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For a while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we, we be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is all the anticipation of putting on this new glorified body someday that we'll wait for at the resurrection, at the rapture, that this is coming. And it's coming for those who have fallen asleep in Christ as well, remember. So this is that anticipation that Paul's referencing. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage. Notice he keeps coming back to that. And we'll see this again later. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And here's the focus. I'm going to bring this up on the screen. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Same concept. We'd rather be. But notice what he shifts to. Verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, here's our aim. We make it our aim to please him. No matter what. Whether, whether he takes us now, whether we linger here for a little longer, it is our aim to please him. We, and and he, he tells us why this makes sense. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to face him someday. I think we live in an age of Christianity where everybody embraces grace. And I do too. Okay? If it weren't for grace, I wouldn't be standing here teaching you. I wouldn't be saved And I wouldn't even be around you because you wouldn't want to be because I'd be such a horrible person, I'd probably be in prison. Okay, So I love grace too. Don't don't misunderstand me. However, we oftentimes take this to the extent where grace is so great that Christ will never even talk to me about what I do for him. And that is not true. He will. We are going to have a meeting between he and I, he and you, and he's going to discuss what he's done through you and what you were willing to do to submit to and, uh, and what he did through you to proclaim his kingdom. That's going to happen. The beam of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ is for every believer. Now, be rest assured, your sins won't come up. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because if you've done things for the wrong reasons, with a sinful, haughty, prideful attitude, and you've done that in the name of Christ, those aren't going to be brought up in the reward seat either, in the beam of seat either. So it could be a short meeting if you're doing things for the wrong reasons. But if you've done things with the right heart because you love him and you love the brotherhood, 
because you love him and you love the gospel and you want to see people get saved and you're sacrificing. It's going to be a long conversation. And at the end, you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But rest assured, you will face him. And that's an important thing to consider, isn't it? Because when we're considering what we do with our lives going forward here, going in from verses 25 through 30, this has got to be in the back of your mind. It's got to be because it's coming for all of us so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Remember, sins aren't brought up. It's only what you've done with the right reasons for the right heart that will be given. And this is what Paul's referencing in 2 Timothy that we already covered, that he is going to receive that reward, the crown of life. All right, moving on. Verses 25 through 26. Our work definitively matters. Paul helped us transition with this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 25 and 26. He says this, convinced of this, what we just heard, living, dying, it's a reward for me. They're both good for me. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. There it is. For your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. Notice This is all about the glory of the Lord. My aim is to please the Lord, whether in the body or out of the body. That's 2 Corinthians 5. We just read it. But my aim is to please him for his glory so that other people can be brought to him. So we can see this continuing on or building up the believer. Here's what Francis Chan says about this particular passage. The ultimate purpose of Paul's reunion with the Philippians had to do with their growing in their confidence in Christ. Through his ministry, he wants them to make much of Jesus. Put this together. What's life about? It's about fruitful work. What does that mean? It means doing our part. It means helping people grow in their faith. It means helping people have more joy in Christ, what we've been talking about. It means ministering to those so that others glorify Jesus more and more. That's why Paul wanted to stay around a little longer. He was willing to postpone ultimate joy for the joy of serving others. Interesting, right? So we go back to that passage again. Right here, for your progress and joy in the faith. Ample cause to glorify Christ. Paul enjoyed seeing people go through the sanctification process. And do you? Do you enjoy discipling people? Do you love to see people doing better than they were yesterday? And because of your influence, the influence of Scripture through you on them, your example, that that brings you joy? That you can see that, that living for Christ is a difference maker? That's what Paul's talking about here. So our work matters. Jesus believes it too. Back to Luke 12. And here's what Jesus says. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whose master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. This is in context of readiness for his return. And Peter asking him this question, Is this for us or is this for everybody? Jesus says this is for everybody. You should be in the business of building people up, using your talents, your gifts, your skill, what you've been given to further the gospel, to build up the church. This passage ends in Luke 12, and I know you're not there, but saying this startling statement that brings us back to that judgment, everyone to whom much is given, much is required. That's that one that shakes you to your soul, doesn't it? Because you know, by the way, American Christian, you've been given much. That's you. That's me. And some of us this really shakes me, have been given this since their childhood, right? So that really shakes you to much is given, much is required. Be in the business of this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, also on the screen. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, 
Strive to excel in building up the church. That should be our business. That should excite us. That should bring us joy. Here's what Peter says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. He talks about the different things that he does. Notice that at the beginning or the end of this passage. In order that in everything God may be glorified. Don't we see the same exact context going back, just going back a few passages? Look at this. So that the glory of Christ can be manifested. Same thing Peter says here, so that in all things Christ may be glorified. Shouldn't surprise you that you see a consistency in Scripture. You shouldn't be surprised at this, that we continually see this. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Paul in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Living for Christ is a blessing. And we see hope and joy and fulfillment and all of this built into serving the Lord. Our work definitely matters. It makes a difference. All right, moving on to verses 27 and through 28. So a life worthy of the gospel takes guts. It takes courage. Now just to make sure that you're not misunderstanding what I'm saying, God's going to give it to you. Thank goodness, because you might say, you don't understand, I'm a real coward. No, me too, I get it. Peter would admit that too today, by the way. When he tried that on his own accord, in his own power, it didn't work out too good for Peter, did it? And he seemed real courageous, by the way, that night. He said, I'll die for you, Lord. Starts cutting off ears and everything. But when it push came to shove, when the Holy Spirit wasn't there with him, helping him, it didn't work out too good. It did later for him. So I want to make sure you understand, I'm not saying that you've got to somehow be the toughest of the tough. You do have to be tough to be a believer. You've got to give it up, but the Lord's going to help you do this. He's going to help you do this. Here's what it says, verses 27 and 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Right at the end there, that of your salvation. The fact that you can stand and live a life worthy with courage and, and the type of intestinal fortitude that it takes is a sign that you're saved. You're different because the world can't do that. And you couldn't do it without Christ. You can't pull that off without him. Notice it tells us in the middle, middle here that we're standing firm in one spirit. There's a unification in that that we're going to unpack this morning too. Fascinating stuff that we see all this put together. Here's what Paul says about this idea of, of living a life worthy. You're going to see, I'm going to use about three different passages where Paul uses the same exact Greek phrase of living a life worthy. But here's what's interesting. As we look at each one, they're for different reasons, but for the same goal. Okay? For this first one in Ephesians 4, it's for the sake of unity. Here's what he says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here's why. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So one of the reasons why we need to live a life worthy of the calling, worthy of the name of Jesus, is that we're unified. We have a unified front as a church as fellow believers, so that the world sees that collectively we're different than everybody else. That collectively we're transformed and different. It's not an individual. We're all thinking the same way. Okay. Here's another one where Paul uses this. Here it's in 1 Thessalonians 2. 
And this time he says, you're going to live a life worthy for the sake of the kingdom and for his glory. Similar to what we've already heard. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, This is the reason for it. He's called you to this. Remember what Paul said, I was called for this. I was called to do this. Of course I'm going to. This is why I enjoy it. This is why God did this, because it's him, not me. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this. Uh, it's, 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 it's kind of what we've been hearing all morning. We're praising the Lord for the opportunities he gives us to live this life, as hard as it may be at times. We praise him for it. We thank him for it constantly. That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you as believers. So we know why we're walking in a manner worthy, because we're called for a kingdom that's coming. Here's another one. As we wait for the kingdom. We've heard this already, but Paul brings this back around to us. Peter agrees. He says this about the stuff of this life. Paul talks about it being transient in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Peter 3, Peter, Peter agrees. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, in, be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? And remember, all of this is, is a perspective on people mocking the idea that Christ will come back, mocking the idea that God's going to do what he says he's going to do in his word. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So here's yet another example of why we live a life worthy. It's because we know what's coming. We're waiting for the Lord and we're an example to the people around us. Go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. I want to go to this together. And we see this is another reason to live a life worthy. Maybe one of the greatest because of what you've been called to. And I love the language that Paul uses here to the church at Colossae. Let's take a look at this. Colossians chapter 1. Those of you who are in Philippians, you don't have far to go. Colossians 1. Let's take a look at this, 9 through 14. Here's what it says. And so, from the day we heard, we had not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Right back to the same phrase, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I want you to keep that in the back of your head. He's qualified you for this. He's the one who's made this happen. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul does a fantastic job here of reminding us exactly who did this, who's responsible for this, why you have the capacity, the ability, or the desire to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to walk in a manner worthy of the name, because he transferred you from darkness to light, the domain of darkness, and transformed you, changed you into his kingdom, into his kingdom of light of his beloved son. This is all because of him. Notice the context of this. It tells you to stay in the word, right? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power. That's verse 10 and 11. 
This is all what we're called to do. So you wonder, okay, why should I live a life worthy? Just think about what you've been called to. Think about what happened. Think about the gratefulness you should have in your heart. Remember, Paul keeps, keeps going back that I'm thankful for this, of what you could be right now, what you might be right now, what you most certainly would be right now had it not been for the grace of God. And now you get a chance to live for him. That's a, an incredible thing. Okay, moving on. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. A couple things come to mind for me here. This one in particular I think is a great passage. It may have immediately hit, hit your head a little bit. Notice it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, we ourselves, he says, let me go, I'm on the wrong page. Here we go. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all the persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are all suffering. Okay, ultimately, people around us, when we preach the gospel, they know their end. Uh, I just heard this morning, John MacArthur was, I don't even know what he was particularly on. My wife was listening to it as she's getting ready, and I walked in and he, I said, whoa, this is exactly what I'm going to talk about it. He said, the reason why people hate our message so much is because if we do it right, we have to tell them that they are unworthy of salvation, they can't do it on their own, that they are deprived sinners, they're destined for hell, and we have a way out. And that first part, they just can't get over. That's, that's the hard part, because when you live your life in a manner worthy of the calling, when you live your life proclaiming the gospel and it's oozing out of you, you're going to do it with grace and, and kindness and love, but ultimately you're going to have to tell people the truth, aren't you? And when you do that, it is a clear sign of their destruction. It's righteous judgment that's coming. That doesn't mean you, you start with that and say, hey, you're a hell-bound sinner, and I can't wait to see you burn. That's not what we do, okay? That's not how, what we're talking about. But when we proclaim the gospel with love, we have to tell them the truth. If they don't know the bad news, they'll never understand the good news. If they don't know where they are and where they sit as, as human sinners, they're never going to understand this. This is another one that may have come to your mind. A clear sign to them, this aroma passage. Paul, I love the language Paul uses here. Look at verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 2. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. But look at the contrast again. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. It smells good for them. If we're in Christ, what we're doing, what we're, what we're, how we're acting, the way we're edifying them, oh, that's good. That's a pleasing aroma to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. Yeah, that doesn't smell good. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Once again, it's not us that's doing this, but man, when you deliver the gospel, it's going to be received one way or another. We don't have time for this, but uh, and maybe just mark this. You can look at this yourself this week. I'm going to skip it today. Jesus is telling us to fear the right thing. This is this, is this whole idea of the cost of discipleship in Matthew chapter 10. Just don't have time to unpack it this morning. But the idea, make sure you're fearing the right people. Don't fear those who can only kill the body and can't touch the soul. You ought to fear me. You ought to fear the one who's telling you these messages. And then let's finish up here. The honor of suffering for Christ. 
Here's what Philippians 1, 29-30 says. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's granted too, by the way, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So what do we see here? Here's the Greek. Okay? When we look at this, the idea of granted is given to. Here's what's fascinating, and maybe some of your, your uh, study Bibles have this in it as well. I found this in a commentary. This verb is from the Greek noun that is equivalent for grace. Hmm. When we think of grace, we think of salvation all the time, which, by the way, Paul talks about here, right? Not only believing in him, he intentionally uses this word, but also suffering for, for his sake. Believing in him is grace. You've been given this as a gift. Your faith, your salvation, your transformation, all free and all from God. But so is the suffering. It's the same basic word in the Greek, grace. Incredible when you think about that. So what does Christ say about this? Blessed, this is, this is of course, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you. It's a blessing when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you, and false, uh, you falsely on my account. Okay, this is turning things on its head, right? They, this, is, this is incredible. It's a blessing when all this happens to you. And it will, Christian, it will happen at some level. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We've talked about that quite a bit today. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and of course, they persecuted Christ. What's Paul say? My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which, my, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me, got me through it. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's going to happen. It's definitively going to happen. What's Peter say? Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. But rejoice in it so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. Same idea. You've been granted this. You've been given this gift. That's a hard thing to, to, to reset, rewire your mind for, but that's a fact. And it's, notice verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's a blessing. But none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Don't give it a, an excuse to do sin. And then let's finish here. Let's, let's land a point right here. Here's what, what Peter says. And I, one thing I want to add, and I had to take it out for the sake of time. Remember how the apostles reacted in Acts chapter 5. After being rearrested, after getting beaten, every one of them for the name of Christ, they left that place rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Don't have time to unpack that. I wish I did. But here's what Peter says. The guy who experienced that. After failing and experienced that, notice what he said. What an honor it is. It's worth it. I'm going to read this whole passage. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All Christians are going to experience this. And after you suffer for a little while, the God of all grace, which has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Oh, man. It's a great place to end. That's what's coming for us. We know we got just a little bit of time of suffering, a little bit of time of difficulty, but what a joy it is to do that. What an honor it is to do that. What a blessing it is to do that. And then what's in store, what he's promised you is even greater. To live as Christ, but to die, it's gain. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this incredible message that, that you've given us, that Paul gave to the church in Philippi, but to us. Pray that we remind us, ourselves of this, that we preach this to ourselves throughout the week. There's going to be some setbacks. There's going to be some difficulties, but all of these opportunities to build up the church, to proclaim the gospel, to further the kingdom, and these things are incredible joy and, and blessings to us, and we, we can revel in that, and we can glorify you in that, and we should. And yet, maybe this week you might take one or two of us home. Maybe this is the week where you come and take your entire church to be with you. Maranatha, I pray that be this week. Today, may it be today. And we'll glory in that too. We win and we win. Lord, that's all because of you. All of this is because of your grace and because of your glory. And we praise you for that. Be with us in this next hour. I pray that we can continue to hear from you and that you continue to stir our hearts. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.